Well, if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. And if you don't have your Bibles, that's okay. The passage will be on the wall, projected on the wall. But this morning, I told you four weeks, five weeks, six weeks ago, that we this fall would be studying the book of Hebrews. And today is the day that we begin with an introduction to the book of Hebrews. So just in the way of preparation before we read, you need to do a little bit of commentary about the book of Hebrews. It may be new to you, or you may be very familiar with it. But as we begin a series, I don't want to do heavy introduction, but some introduction I think is appropriate. Hebrews is a beloved book of the Bible that is rich in teaching, practical in application, and pithy in its communication. We call these 13 chapters the book of Hebrews, as it is not structured as a typical New Testament epistle with a personal greeting and introduction of the author, as is usually the case. This means we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Though there are many interesting and varying opinions, none of those ultimately matter as God was not concerned to make this known to us. So I'll spare our time this morning and not even comment on the various names and theories surrounding possible authorship. Because the truth is we don't know and we're not going to know, so let's just move on. If you do want to talk about that, I'm available for coffee or lunch this week. You just let me know. What we can say about the book of Hebrews is that the author, whoever it is, refers to his writing as a written word of exhortation to these Christians. Chapter 13, verse 22, he describes everything he's written as a word of exhortation. Both there and when that phrase is used elsewhere in the New Testament, it's referring to a sermon. And so what we really have is a sermon letter. And for this reason, Hebrews has been described as a sermon letter. And if you sit this afternoon or, or this week and you read all of Hebrews in one sitting, which would take you about 30 minutes, I think you'll see that's exactly what it is. It reads like a powerful, clear, concise sermon. And so, it is a sermon letter. And it's best probably to understand it as that as we begin this series together. The location of the recipients of this sermon letter is not stated either, but it is evident that these are Jewish Christians, which is why it has been called Hebrews. Normally, New Testament letters are named after their author or the recipient. So since we know neither in this case, it has simply been called Hebrews, as in to the Hebrews. It's clear that the purpose of the sermon letter is to edify the faith of these Christians and to urge them to persevere in their faith in Christ through various sufferings, trials, and persecutions that have come against them and their faith. The author is concerned that their circumstances 
are such that they are at risk of giving up the faith. Because persecution and suffering is so intense for them, some are thinking it would be easier to walk away from Jesus, from the faith, from Christianity, and to return to the more comfortable, traditional Judaism that they had practiced. And so it is a pastoral letter written to those in persecution who were thinking about walking away. And in that way, Hebrews becomes very practical and helpful for us. The parallel applications for us in our current culture, in our context, are obvious. Christians in America today are experiencing increasing pressure to conform our historic faith and practice to secular standards, to secular definitions, to secular practices. And some Christians, sadly, some churches, sadly, and some denominations, sadly, are succumbing to those pressures. The exhortation to the Hebrews exhorts us now as much as it did the early church then. They were then, as we are now, under the covenantal obligation to persevere in the faith, to hold fast to our confession of faith, which the author says in chapter 10, verse 23. And so to help them and to help us, as we contend with sin and cultural pressures, maybe as you at work or at school wonder, is it really worth it to identify with the church? Is it really worth it to identify with Christ? To help them in that pressure and to help us in that same pressure in our culture. The author of Hebrews does something significant in the introduction of his letter. He reminds them and roots them in truth. Gospel truth. And that truth is one that we can be confident in and that will stabilize our faith in uncertain times. So what is that truth? How does he root them? What does he seek to equip them with to withstand those pressures? We'll give your attention to God's Word. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is the Word of God. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in heaven. So He became as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is superior to theirs. Quite a bold beginning to a sermon letter. Let's pray that God would work His faith 
in us. Lord, as we begin this consideration of your word in an attempt to not just study it, but to preach it and to have it preached to us, Lord, would you be our preacher and our teacher? Would you tell us true things? Would you give us faith to believe that we might hold on tightly to the profession of faith that you have given us? We ask this and we pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen. So he comes right out of the gate with explanation. Well, he clearly didn't go to seminary because they teach you in seminary when you write a sermon, be careful leading with heavy explanation, right? Give them a little story, give them a little carrot to win the ear. Okay, so it's true, I try to do that sometimes, but today, he came bold out of the gate with explanation, so I am too. I have to, to address what he's saying. And remember, that's the job of the preacher is to, is to say what the text says. So Hebrews chapter 1, he comes out immediately what these people who are suffering and who are thinking about compromising the confession of their faith, the very first thing out of the gate he wants them to chew on is what? The doctrine of revelation. How God reveals himself. That's heady, that's theological, and he leads with it. But he leads with it, whoever he is, because he knows, led by God, that's what these people need. So he leads with heavy explanation, and, and I just have to do the same. So this doctrine of revelation, not the book of revelation, but the doctrine of revelation, theologians use that to refer to how God reveals himself to his people. And that's a very important doctrine. If, if, if you get the doctrine of revelation wrong, it's like other important key doctrines. I think I've told you this before. It's kind of like you get up and you get dressed in the morning, and if you get the first button wrong on your shirt, you're going to be off at the top or the bottom, whichever way you start and go. There's an argument to be had about if you start at the bottom or the top, I'm sure. But you get either one, you get the first one wrong, and you get to the top and you're off. For the Christian, the doctrine of revelation, how you look, for God to communicate to you is vital and it's key and it's the number one thing he thinks these people need to be rooted in. So what say you? How, what is your doctrine of revelation? What do you believe about how God communicates with his people? So for us, historically and traditionally in the Christian church, it's been pretty clear. The doctrine of revelation, of, of how God reveals himself is a doctrine of self-disclosure. God always has to tell us about Him. We can't come to any right conclusion with our own sinful heads and sinful hearts. We need Him to tell us, to reveal to us who He is, what He's like, what His nature is like, what His character is like. And He does that in very specific ways. And so the author begins, he says... Well, there's ways God's done this in the past. And there's ways that He does it now. And that's where the real meat of our sermon is. Now, theologians have taken this and put it in two categories. Let me try to make this brief and simple. Two categories of revelation that the church has understood is general revelation or natural revelation and then special revelation or supernatural 
revelation. General revelation, that non-specific revelation, we see when we walk out of the doors of the church when we leave here. The sun is bright, the trees are green, the sky is blue, the clouds are fluffy and white, and the scriptures say all of that testifies to the reality of a creative God. That that is his handiwork. That is his, his masterpiece of his creation. And it testifies to who God is and to the nature of who God is. Psalm 19 models this when it says this concerning general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. And so general revelation, we really believe that, that it is a testimony to the existence of God when you slow down enough to look at His creation. Problem is we don't do that very much. I remember many years ago uh, when I was out of college and doing youth ministry, working with a boys' small group, I challenged them to get up early enough to watch the sunrise and to journal about it. And it was surprising to me that they did it. But they, every one of them said the same thing. These boys, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, they were like, yeah, we've never seen the sunrise before. We sleep through it every day. And maybe that's true of you. Maybe get up and watch the sunrise and think about Psalm 19 and how that is like a voice from heaven saying, this is my creation. I made this. So that's general revelation, which is very important. But especially important is the doctrine of special revelation. That God does something very special to name himself and reveal himself through various means. And in the Old Testament, he did it through the prophets. He would raise up a voice. He would raise up a person through whom he would speak his nature, his character, his law, his words. Listen to what Deuteronomy 18 says about this office of a prophet. Verses 18 and 19. I will raise up for them, this is the Lord speaking, a prophet like you, Moses, from among their fellow Israelites. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. So that's the Lord saying, this is the method and mode that I'm going to use. It's real. Now, lest someone abuse that, because there's great potential for abuse and misuse of that, right? Uh, the next verse says this, But a prophet who, speaks, who presumes to speak in my name anything that I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, they are to be put to death. So very serious boundaries that the Lord does speak in the Old Testament through prophets. And if anyone should misuse or abuse that, there's a death penalty for it within Israel. Okay, So, whoa, how do we apply that? Not, not for this sermon. Another day. 
So general revelation, special revelation. And in the New Testament, we have something super special. And that is the incarnation and the inspiration of apostolic witnesses. The Lord himself says he comes as the Son. The exact representation of the Father. God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus, who we celebrate at Christmas, who was anticipated and foretold by the prophet Isaiah. And then following that, this apostolic witness where the Lord, like in Old Testament prophets, now speaks through the written word of the apostles who knew firsthand accounts with Jesus and his ministry. And the Holy Spirit used them to give us what we have in the Holy Scriptures. So, boom, I had to lead with explanation. I told you it's a lot, but you, you need to have those categories. Those are important categories. General revelation, special revelation, or call it natural revelation and supernatural revelation. That is how God has worked in the past and our understanding of it. Now, three quick points to this sermon. That was not a point, but it probably should have been. All right, number one, how God spoke in the past. That method and means that we just heard described. Verse 1, again from Hebrews says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors, our spiritual fathers, through the prophets. At many times and in various ways. And if you've read the Old Testament or if you've heard any preaching from the Old Testament, you know that's precisely right. God spoke at various times and in all kinds of various ways. It wasn't just one way. He spoke through voices. He spoke through dreams, visions. And supernaturally, there were these things called theophanies. Visible, physical manifestations of the holy God. Things like the burning bush where the voice came from a bush that was on fire but was not being consumed. Or the theophany of, of the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day, a visible manifestation of the presence of God. So there are these physical theophanies for, for Israel's good in the Old Testament. And that's how he did it. That was normative. It seems crazy to us maybe, but it was normative in Israel's experience with Yahweh. But God and all those things, it was always God who was the initiator to reveal Himself. And He always did it by His appointed means. You couldn't compel Him to communicate. You couldn't force Him to communicate. God communicated when God was good and ready and willing to communicate something. So those are, in a sense, the ground rules of how God communicated in the past. But the author of Hebrews says that there's a paradigm shift. Something has happened. And incidentally, in the Bible, anytime there's a paradigm shift, it's clearly pointed to. And this is an example of that. Listen to what he does in verse 2. That verse 1, that's how God did it in the past. But in these last days, which is very loaded language in the Bible, he says this. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He also made the universe. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
the creator of the universe, the author says. In these last days, God has communicated through his incarnate son. Now that language of last days, I said, is is loaded language. That's Old Testament language referencing the messianic era. When the last days come, even in Hebrews, our pastoral prayer section from Hebrews 10, referred to the day. That's anticipating a day to come. And all that language is always associated with the Messiah in His first coming or in His second coming. So it's loaded and meaningful. When we read that, the first thing we think of, oh, in these last days, you mean currently, presently. Well, yeah, that's, that's right. It's true because it was for them. But it's also indicative of this Messiah that Jesus has fulfilled the office of. So God spoke in the past through the prophets, but in these last days, God is doing something. He's fulfilling all those promises that the prophets had made. And it's all about His incarnate Word in the Son. Now that incarnate Word, how did He communicate? Now this is very important. He revealed God's Word objectively, proclaiming it. Objectively, He Himself was the Word in flesh, and He spoke, He taught, He preached the Word of God objectively. Listen to what the Gospel of John in chapter 1 says of this Messiah of Jesus. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh, And made his dwelling among us. Jesus is the Word. He is the incarnate Word. And he is objective. He is real. He is declared. He is true. So God spoke through the prophets. But in these last days, the Messiah has come. And now he speaks through his Son. And if you want a glimpse... Now this is fascinating. If you want a glimpse to the author of Hebrews doctrine of Scripture, to his understanding of the Old Testament, which is very important to be able to to hear and see modeled. If you ever wonder if maybe we're overemphasizing things, listen to what he does right here. I think I have this for you. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 12. The author of Hebrews cites, he quotes Psalm 22, 22. And in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 12, he says... That Jesus is the one speaking. That Jesus was the one speaking in the psalm. So he attributes to Jesus the words of the psalms. And he doesn't do it just one time. It's not like a slip of the pen and it was a mistake. Then in Hebrews chapter 3 verses 7 through 11, he quotes Psalm 95. And he attributes Psalm 95, written all those years previous, to the Holy Spirit as the speaker. So you put that together and you get the doctrine of Scripture according to the author of Hebrews. That Jesus, the Holy Spirit, God the Father, are the author of the Old Testament. And so if you don't read the Old Testament, you do so at your own peril. It's a part of God's objective revealed will to us. Many of the promises in seed form that would become the oak tree that Jesus is. But beautiful promises given to God and His church. And remember, in Mark chapter 9, our reflection, if if you remember it, 
The Lord spoke as a voice from heaven at the baptism of Jesus. And what did he say? This is my son. Listen to him. So all authority of the word of God is incarnate in the person of Jesus. And in the midst of their trial and their suffering, these Hebrews, according to the author, what did they need most? That they might stand their ground in their faith? They needed a healthy doctrine of revelation. They needed to know where to look for authority and for confidence. And that what they were believing was true. Because it seemed as though that truth was being crowded out by all the pressures, all the voices surrounding them as they lived life in their culture. So God spoke in the past by the prophets. In these last days, He's spoken by His Son, who is the authority who establishes everything. Now, in the way of application, point number three, the last point. So... How does God speak now in the present? How does God speak now? He told us how He spoke in the past. told us how He spoke at the time of the writing of this book. But what about right now? How does God speak to you? I have two points, and I want you to see them. Number one, He speaks objectively through His Word. The incarnate Word, the written Word of God. Amen? That's to say we look to the Bible as the authoritative Word of God. All right, number two, B. What's the second thing we look for? What's there? No, there should be a B there. Is there not a B there? Then picture for me a B up there. (laughs) Is there really not one? There should be a B right there. And you know what I had written there? Nothing. There is no B. God speaks to us through His Word. But you and I love to try to find some other kind of way. Because reading, hearing, discerning, seeking God's Word, that can be hard work. Right? We can get all kinds of gut instinct, good ideas about how we think God should communicate to us. Tell us His will for our life. Can't we? We can get creative. Dangerously creative. But what I'm saying this morning is, God has given us His Word, His objective Word, His revealed will to us, contained in the 66 books of the Bible. You and I have this fallen nature and instinct that are like, hey, that's great, but how about another method and means? Now, I want to close the sermon with some real-life examples and illustrations. All of these are true. I'm not going to name anybody, though you wouldn't know these people anyway. But I'm going to introduce it this way. You and I need to beware our own, our cultures, our Christian cultures, wonky ways of trying to discern God's will and to know God's will for our lives. Because we are wonky. There are wonky things happening around us. What do I mean by that? 20, 30 years ago, I was a youth pastor meeting with a teenager in a coffee shop. Brugger's Bagels. And I was trying to highlight this doctrine of Scripture. And I asked this person, I said, if God had an intimate 
and personal word that he wanted you to hear, how would you look for him to communicate it? How would you look for him to reveal himself to you? And this very well-meaning, normal, reasonable teenage Christian said, Huh, I never thought about that. But I guess he would give me a sign. I guess he'd give me a sign. Well, application for us. If God had an intimate and personal word that he wanted to communicate to you, how would you look for him to do that? The answer is A. His revealed word. But you and I want to look for a sign. But it's a wicked and adulterous generation that looks for a sign, right? We love to look for a sign. I had a fellow pastor in a church that I served in years ago who was a pastor to that teenager who probably set up that kind of thinking. And I may have told you this story before. I'll try to tell it briefly, quickly. But this pastor in his middle-aged years had reached the point where he thought God was calling him away from this church to another church in Alabama, from Greensboro, North Carolina to Alabama. And in a sermon, I heard him tell this story that really models the opposite of what I'm saying this morning. But he had determined to leave that church to accept a new call to go pastor a different church in Alabama. So that is a long process. That takes about a year. I think we live through that together. That's a long process. So the day came and he loaded up his U-Haul truck and he's literally driving down I-85 um, towards Alabama and he gets cold feet. He starts to think, oh, do I really want to leave that church and go to this other one? Not a great time to start having those thoughts, right? He's literally moving with a U-Haul truck. And he said in his sermon, he said, I, uh, I just prayed right then and there on the spot while I was driving my U-Haul. And I said, Lord, not sure if this is the right thing. Could you give me a sign? And he said, at that very moment, I looked on the side of the road and nailed to a pine tree on I-85. And I can tell you it is between Clemson and Atlanta because I saw this sign back in those years when I would make that trip. I saw the sign. I know it's a true story. There was a sign on the pine tree that said, To everything there is a season. Turn, turn, turn. And he read that and he said, boom. I knew that God had spoken to me that I needed to turn the car around. Now, why did the teenage girl think that, well, if God had a message for me, then he'll give me a sign? Well, maybe because her pastor told her that. But here's, here's where I want us to hear the pastoral benefit of what the author of Hebrews is giving us. Do you understand how torturous it is if you and I are left in this life to read subjective signs rather than God's objective word? Because, by the way, to everything there is a season. He even said, that's from the Bible. But that's not the part that informed him. The part that informed him was turn, 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 which are lyrics from the bird song, right, old people? That was the informative part of, of what he looked to. And that's not the Bible. It's a good song, but it makes for bad instruction about how to make decisions in life. And by the way, that subjective nature and the torturous interpretation of it, how do you interpret turn, turn, turn? That's three turns. Do you turn 
this way and then this way and then this way again and go back? Do you see, it, it, it's not helpful. It's also not biblical. The truth, and we can talk about this over a cup of coffee. The truth is, when God calls us to doing something, it can be painstaking and difficult to make decisions. I'm one of those people. But you put your faith in His revealed will. You put your confidence in the principles that it gives you. And then you make a decision. And you trust that God is at work. God's will be done. And it may not work out. It may be a hardship that you have to live through. But God's will be done. God will use that hardship for your good. So what is your doctrine of Scripture? What is your doctrine of revelation? How do you look for God to speak to you? This morning I want to be bold and clear out of the gate. Christians look to God's revealed will in God's revealed word. That's what we have. That's what He's given us. We don't look for God to do anything different than what He has said He does. Beware the person, beware the pastor who says, Oh, I just heard God say. And people say that. Well, if you're repeating what Scripture just said and what you read, amen. But if you're coming up with a wild idea that sounds good and you're going to say, I just heard God say, be careful. What's your doctrine of revelation? What's your doctrine of understanding how God communicates with His people? I could tell you other stories from years of college ministry and youth ministry. Sweet, well-meaning Christians making life decisions based on songs playing on the radio. That, you know, should I break up with her? I don't know. Brandy's, Brandy's a great girl. She's, she's such a fine girl. What a great wife she would be. And then our song came on the radio, and I just knew God was like Mary Brandy. No. Brandy may be somebody else's wife. You've got to do the hard work of discerning the Scriptures, the truths, the principles there, and then go make your best decision. But don't be hokey. Don't be wonky when it comes to the doctrine of revelation. You're picking up on we have a very high view of Scripture in this church, in the Presbyterian Church in America. It is hard work to take up God's Word, to trust it by faith, to discern it. But it's really not harder than subjectively interpreting the wonky signs that our sinful hearts want and long for. That may stir up some lunchtime conversation for you. I hope it does. But if God had an intimate, personal message for you to hear, how would you look for Him to communicate it? Well, here's the answer. God does have an intimate and personal message for you to hear. And He has revealed it. It's right here. But you and I tend to let this sit on the bookshelf or on the nightstand. God has spoken in the past, through the prophets, various ways and means. But in these last days, He's spoken once and for all through His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things. And the author of Hebrews looks at these struggling Christians who are thinking about leaving the faith, and he says, you need a doctrine of revelation that you would know the truth of God, the gospel of God, the authority of God. Put your trust in Him. Why? I'll close with this. Hebrews 13, verse 8. Because Jesus Christ, he says, is the same yesterday, 
today and forever. And so is his communication with his people. He is the incarnate word. He, his word is eternal. His word and his purposes are enduring. And we need to thank God for that. That is the stability we need in a culture that is hostile. In a culture that rejects that word. There are some who will hold fast to it. And that is his church. May that be who we are. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, that is my prayer for myself and my prayer for these, your sheep, that we would be equipped and encouraged to endure in the faith with hope and confidence in your word. Lord, may we love your word. May we know your word. May we hold fast to your word. Do this in us by your spirit because we cannot do this for ourselves. We ask this and we pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen.